Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. We got a great show for you today. We're recording this on April 1st, April Fool's Day. No jokes for you guys today. I'm sitting back in the office, excited because I'll be traveling to... Minneapolis this weekend. My alma mater finally made the final four after some grave disappointment last year. So doing a brief stop in Niagara and Buffalo. If anyone's listening, come say hello for a couple talks and then hitting up Minneapolis. We got any Minneapolis followers? Let me know. Would love to say hey while in town for a few days, hopefully four days, because that means they make the finals. But yeah, come say hello. All right, back to our show. We're having our guests back after our last conversation last fall, episode 122. You should check it out uh, to listen to this as a series. He's the co-founder, Chief Revenue Officer of Equities In. Welcome back to the show, Phil Hazlitt. Thanks for having me back. So Phil, we got to start. I don't know where anywhere else we'll start, but we got to start with the Lyft IPO. You know, this was a big media topic for the past few weeks. It's been a big speculation for the past few quarters. It finally came to market. Again, the timeliness, I'll mention it went public when I was in New York City. Today is the first. By the time this airs this week, it could be trading anywhere between $10 and $200. Uh, but it's right <laughs> around the issue price. Talk to me about it. What's going on? This is a pretty a pretty big event in uh, private investing as well as Techland. Yeah, probably the first real big iconic IPO of 2019 within the tech space. You know, they raised over $2 billion, $30 billion valuation, kind of like the culmination of a lot of what I think has happened in private markets. It's going to, I'm guessing, lead to the door opening for another half dozen companies that are very large in size in both their market cap and kind of like how they're raising money and spending it. So, you know, wouldn't be surprised to see Uber come out next. You know, I think there's a Pinterest S1 filed, which is like the document they put out there before they do their actual initial public offering. So I think it's going to be like a big cascade of a lot of tech IPOs coming through. Well, it feels like these IPO windows, as bankers would like to say, are pretty cyclical. And you look at over time that, that these tend to be maybe grouping. I don't know if that's just an old old maiden's tale or that that's actually quite a bit of reality. Talk to us a little bit about IPO process in general. I think a lot of investors get most of their information maybe about all this through the media. And so it, it may just be a little confusing. But talk to us about first, we could talk about from the maybe the company standpoint, and then also from the investor standpoint. So you want Phil Hazlitt's IPO guide for dummies. Yeah. Great. So I think first off, you're right. The way that the IPOs kind of get clustered together is not a myth or anything. It's It really has to do with the fact that IPOs tend to be the most successful when the market is not volatile. And Q1 was definitely a big rebound versus Q4 in 2018 with a big rebound for NASDAQ, S&P, Dow Jones, kind of all of them 
climbing back up in like the low teens as far as percentage returns. So if you kind of were to draw a graph of when IPOs are most popular, they would be inversely correlated with volatility across the stock market. And so I kind of like to think about a bunch of boats leaving the harbor when the water's really flat, all the boats are going to go out at the same time. When the water's really choppy, all the boats are going to stay in. So that's my cheesy analogy of the day. But to kind of cover the whole IPO process, if we kind of work at what the actual event is and work with maybe a little bit backwards, the actual event of the IPO is the first time that a company's stock is traded publicly on an exchange where your average Joe investor can buy five shares of stock through their Charles Schwab account into their portfolio. It's usually kind of a badge of honor for a CEO or a founder for their company to finally go public, meaning that, you know, it kind of shows that they're all grown up, you know, they've moved out of mom and dad's basement and they're, they're a mature company with real books and records, financial statements, a full board, an audit committee, kind of the, the whole kit and caboodle. The way that you get there takes quite a bit of work. So if we kind of start at the beginning of the IPO process, it start, probably starts like two years before the company actually lists and starts trading. The company starts to get all its books in order. It probably starts doing investment committee kind of walkthroughs because they're going to have to get used to quarterly earnings reports. They're going to have to get used to Wall Street analysts kind of grilling them about why'd you do this and not that? Why'd you hire this person and not that? Why haven't you tried for Lyft? Why haven't you tried teleportation yet? You know, like they're going to get a lot of these crazy questions. So you kind of start by getting all your ducks in a row, maybe two years before you start hiring, you know, your formal CFO that's gone through this thing before you start talking to banks. You can start saying, hey, I want to go public. I want to I want to finally get this thing out in the open, help me get it ready. And, and the next kind of 12, 18 months, you know, leading up to the IPO are really going to be a lot of focus on talking to the banks, talking to potential investors that are going to participate in your IPO. And so like the big distinction I think that people don't really connect is like the initial public offering, the IPO, is when Lyft as a company, for example, issues a bunch of new shares, like $2 billion worth of new shares directly to mostly institutional investors. And then what happens the day of the IPO later is that the stock that's now in the hands of the institu institutional traders actually starts trading in, you know, Charles Schwab and TD Ameritrade type accounts. So they're kind of like two different events that happen like within two hours of each other. One is when you issue a bunch of new shares to the T. Rowe Prices and the Wellingtons and the sovereign wealth funds of the world. And then like a few hours later, you actually have the stock start trading, usually at like a bit of a premium to what that IPO price was. So that's a kind of a bit of it in a nutshell on how IPOs work. And so, you know, there was a brief period where some of the, some of the companies and some of the banks, you know, were trying to disrupt the IPO process. I mean, I remember when Google went public, there's been a couple of traditional models that oddly enough don't don't seem to have stuck when when it comes to the way companies IPOs. You talk a little bit about that, how how companies work with the bankers to actually make the process happen. To kind of think about the process and how it works with banks, the reason why companies wanted to disrupt it and avoid it was because going public is super expensive. Not only just from the amount of paper you have to do to file and register, but even when you think about what goes on with the banks, like the typical rate that you pay to banks can be anywhere between five and 7% of what you raise. So imagine like in Lyft's case, you know, they raised over $2 billion. That's like something like 120 million bucks that could be going out of their pocket, which is a lot of money. You know, that's a lot of software engineers, even in Silicon Valley. So it's something that a couple of companies have tried to think about doing differently, where they said, well, it's 2019. How can I get my shares in the hands of a bunch of investors that want to believe in my company, invest in my company without having to use Goldman Sachs or without having to use Morgan Stanley and paying them 100 million bucks. And so kind of the first company to give that a shot was Google, I think in 2003 or 2004, 
where they basically kind of ran this auction process and kind of let investors submit what they were willing to pay for Google stock and the amount and size. And they kind of did this reverse Dutch auction where they took all the shares that people reserved and they took the, the lowest price that would clear everyone and didn't really go that well. I'm not really sure why people say it didn't go well, other than the fact that the stock didn't like kind of react really positively after it went public. But I think they did save a ton of money. So that was kind of like the first version. Then if you fast forward, like nobody did anything too revolutionary for like 15 years until Spotify came around last year and kind of asked the same question, which, which said, well, if we know a bunch of people know our product and we think they're going to buy our shares anyways, why do we need to have a bank get all those people together for us? And the banks, you know, of course, defended themselves. Well, it's a process. You know, you got to make sure that you make all the institutional investors happy. Uh, you know, I've been drinking martinis with, you know, John Doe over at Solomon Smith Marty since, you know, we were at Harvard playing lacrosse together. And then Spotify said, well, no, everyone knows our product. And also we've raised a bunch of money already in the private markets. We actually don't need more. It's just this is a chance to kind of have a publicly traded version of our stock. So Spotify did what was called a direct listing, which was like very, very new at the time. In fact, I think like the New York Stock Exchange had to get S approval even to run the thing. And they did it through 2018. They basically said, okay, starting at this point in time, if you have shares of Spotify as an employee or early investor or whatnot, basically starting at this point, you now have shares that can be publicly traded. You can literally click a button. You can sell them through your through your Robinhood account. You can buy more if you want. And, and we'll use the banks a little bit to help us determine what the fair price is. But other than that, that's kind of what we're doing. And so New York Stock Exchange like kind of helped embrace it. It was a huge success. I think the price of the stock has been pretty stable, if not slightly high versus what they kind of went out at over a year ago. And I think that's the kind of newer version that we might see happen over the next, call it, six or 12 months, which a couple companies have been considering. I think I think the rumor was that Airbnb might consider it and Slack might consider it. And those are obviously like two pretty big marquee software companies in the pre-IPO space. It's funny to me because I've always scratched my head and looking at this space as well as, you know, the traditional single family home real estate fee space. And it's like two of the largest, but still most inefficient fee Pots of capital with massive fees that seem just so ripe for disruption. It's crazy to me that they're both hasn't gone away yet, but who knows? Maybe we're in the early days of seeing this happen. Well, one more just kind of broad question, then we'll dig into some of the Lyft S1 stuff. You know, the cycle has changed, it feels like a bit over the past decade where you had a lot of this talk of companies staying private for longer, the characteristics. um, Maybe talk to us a little bit about the care characteristics of the firms, you know, in this particular cycle, how they may look different than firms that would have gone public, you know, in the late nineties, as far yeah. as age, profitability, some of the reasons it's it's changed, all those ideas there. Yeah. So I'll caveat this first with that I started my professional career in 2009. So I actually have owned, have it doesn't even look like a cycle to me at this point. It just looks like an upward arrow, which, which I think will actually be kind of relevant as we talk about this private public market where like a lot of these employees at Lyft and Uber and these investors and all these companies like actually haven't seen a down market, which is kind of crazy to me. But I'll revisit that in a second. I think the big fundamental change that's happened over the last 15 years is that like the value at which companies go public now is far, far higher. And the age of those companies is far, far much older than they used to be. So like the best example is I think Amazon in 19, you know, the mid nineties went public at like a $400 million valuation with $20 million in revenue and like three investors. It was Bezos's parents, 
like as two of them. Then there was then there was one venture capital investor, and I think that was it. And you know, if you were an investor on day one after their initial public offering, you got to buy into shares, and now it's a gazillion dollar business. And you got to like a lot of the returns were captured in the public markets, right? Not the private ones. If you fast forward today, you kind of have the opposite, where there's so much capital sloshing around for these companies to take from private investors, mainly private equity funds, venture capital firms, family offices, uh, sovereign wealth funds, huge like money managers, et cetera, that the companies are going private way later. And what I think is kind of not getting captured well in the media, especially around something like Lyft on Friday, is that they keep talking about how, oh, you know, we've never seen a company go public that has lost $800 million, you know, before. And my answer was, well, Lyft's doing $2 billion a year in revenue, and it's growing that revenue 105% a year. There are only eight companies listed on the stock exchanges in the U.S. with that kind of profile, eight. And so all of the media likes to talk about, oh, my gosh, this company is burning so much cash. It's like, I don't think they're aware of like what's going to happen next. Like Lyft's numbers look like peanuts compared to some other companies that are going to go public as far as losses. The age of these companies and the capital they've been able to raise has basically meant that they're going to build, they're going to spend tons of money up front on building this monstrous competitive moat, whether it's a network, you know, whether it's proprietary software, whether it's vendor lock-in, they're going to build this moat and it's going to cost a ton of money. And the reason why we've never seen these level of losses before is because no one's ever been able to raise as much capital while they're private. Like no one had the money to spend before they were public to like have a billion dollars of losses. I mean, Lyft raised $7 billion before they went public. Like there's a lot of money sloshing around. And so I think that's the biggest change. If you know, if, if you were like a retail investor starting in, let's just say 1990, and now it's, you know, 30 years later, you were before were able to kind of buy single stocks or buy into an ETF that had single stocks that had very high risk, high reward technology companies in them, in those ETFs or, or in your portfolio. And now when those companies go public, they are enormous. And so all of that beta that you've been a part of getting return on those kind of riskier investments is like, it's basically gone because now you're getting into Lyft when it's a $30 billion business. So I think that's inherently the biggest thing that's changed. And and the reason why I, I mentioned that I haven't seen like a fair market yet in my professional career is because maybe I say a lot of these things about how the, you know, Lyft is actually doing great as a company, even though it's losing $800 million a year. I can see how somebody that lived through the dot-com bubble and the financial crisis looking at me and thinking I'm a moron because, you know, there's a lot of telltale signs they think they're seeing of a bubble happening all over again. So that's kind of why I have a bit of a disclaimer there that, you know, maybe I'm a little more optimistic than others. It's funny because if, if you look back to the 90s and it was such a fun time, I love bubbles. I, I was in college, <laughs> I was at university, and but I also remember general complexion of the companies that were going public at the time there was that, yes, they had losses, but in their case, they also didn't really have any revenue, right. uh, which they is had totally- eyeballs, right? Or they had like, you know, website visits. There. I remember being one of my favorite trading techniques at time to balance out all my idiotic long biotechs was to short all the lockups because, and we'll get to that in a minute on some of the workings of how the uh, IPO process works for the investor, but all these guys that were just burning an enormous amount of cash that didn't have any revenues as well, was like shooting fish in a barrel. Do you think that's changed now that Lyft has gone public and you're probably going to see this this next group come public has it changed the the way that companies are thinking about staying private for longer? Or do you think it's just going to continue the way that it has been where a lot of these early stage companies say, screw it, there's too many drawbacks of being public, 
I'm happy to just stay private until later? Or, or are they going to start to get some of the animal spirits and salivate and say, okay, wait, this actually looks like pretty, pretty cool situation. Has it changed at all? Or is it just sort of more the more the same of what's the world's come to look like recently? Well, you know, to put my my short term reaction, knee jerk reaction hat on on Friday, I would have said, yeah, it's changed for the better. All the companies are going to go public because of how successful Lyft was. And then this morning when Lyft was down 10%, I feel like maybe things changed a little bit. So what I think will happen is that companies that have raised all this capital in the private markets probably want to stay private for longer and longer, which is easier. It has less net press they have to deal with. It's cheaper because they don't have to go through nearly as many filings. But there's two things that are going to hold them back from doing that forever. One is that they have venture capital investors that are going to run out of patience at some point, right? If you think about DocuSign that went public last year, DocuSign was private for like 13 or 14 years, which means that probably... 10 or 11 years before their IPO, some venture capital investor wrote them like a series A funding round check of you know a few million bucks. So imagine if you're that investor that's got its own limited partners it has to report to saying, yeah, we got this huge home run in the portfolio, really excited, the management's doing a great job, it's growing, it's expanding. And they're like, yeah, but dude, you've been telling us that story for nine years. Like, where are the results? Like, show me the results. So that's the one part that's going to be hard. So that, that's kind of reason one why companies can't stay private forever, in my opinion. Two is that you have to address liquidity for your other shareholders. So there is a growing and active pre-IPO secondary market, which is what Equities End does. And I think you really need to address that piece if you're going to want to stay private for, for a really long time. And so I think the combination of those two things is probably going to continue keeping companies to go public um, at some point. I would say like the third and fourth reasons to do it are more publicity for your brand, right? So like Lyft can only advertise so much or give away so many free rides. So getting some additional prominence by being up on the exchange floor. And then the fourth one is having a currency for acquisitions in the future. So now when Lyft goes and buys, I don't know, some autonomous vehicle software company, they can now issue, you know, they can use their own Lyft stock that's publicly traded as currency for doing that as well. So I think we're going to continue to see companies coming through, but it's going to be really, really important for them to, to kind of, as you said, kind of like control this narrative and, and like really describe why they look so different than a company might have looked 10 years ago, which is like, why why are you losing $700 million? And and the answer is, well, because we're also growing top line 100, 100% a year as a giant company. It's like, it's kind of just this new normal to get used to. Let's talk a little bit more about Lyft and then we'll hop over to, to some other topics. You know, you guys put out a lot of great material around the IPO, whether it was kind of infographics or the various funding rounds that I think was instructive. And there's a couple of things that I want to use as jumping off points. The first, maybe... Talk to us a little bit about the S1 and just to the listeners, you mentioned already what, what that doc is, but is there anything in that document that, you know, when, when they put it out, that you guys put out a great review that was, man, 15 pages probably. Uh, is, there, is there anything that stuck out as particularly interesting that you thought was something that was either a surprise or thoughtful or anyway, just stuck out in your mind? For one, like I'm, I'm a pretty big like securities and like stock like geek. So reading through an S1 is super exciting because you know we can hypothesize on how these companies are performing and where they're spending their money and everything. But the S1 is the first time where you get basically 300 pages of like a history lesson of what Lyft has done and what it plans to do in the future. And that kind of goes for any other company. And so I get a big kick out of reading them. You know, we, we managed to condense it down to 15 pages. I'm sure the first draft was probably 30 pages. And when we really like boiled it down, I think one of the most interesting things for me is that Lyft spent $300 million on research and development in 2018, up from like 
I think, 50 or $60 million two years before that. So I say that because people kind of talk about, oh, Lyft is startup worth $30 billion. I'm like, no, this is a tech company that spent $300 million on research and development, likely a lot going towards autonomous vehicles and driving to probably try to get kind of a first mover advantage in that space. I think that's probably one of the most interesting parts that came out in the S1. And then I would say the second part in the S1 that was a bit more of like a recurring theme was Lyft has positioned itself as a transportation as a service company, right? T-A-A-S, a transportation as a service company where they want to handle end-to-end transportation for any individual human being on the planet, which means they want you, Mev, to get on a scooter somewhere, go from your house to another location, hop into a car with a couple other people that's driven by a robot, eventually get to another destination, and then from that end, hop into another scooter and get to work. They want to handle like that whole end-to-end piece, and they're focused exclusively on the transportation piece. And I say that because they're trying to create some space away from what Uber's kind of description is going to be of themselves when they go public and who knows, maybe a month or two. Uber is going to talk about how they are a global logistics and transportation company, right? How they are handling moving any item of any size from any point A to any point B. And so I think those are the kind of the two things that I really found interesting about Nest One is how much money Lyft's spending on kind of the future, which is why they're probably burning so much money. And also how they're really like how they found a really kind of I think, nice, clean way to isolate how they look as a company versus Uber. Because when you actually, when you think about it, like Lyft is, you know, it's a startup, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's high growth, but it's also like, it's probably one of the most interesting pure play transportation investments you could have out of public companies, right? Could you build a portfolio of General Motors and other car companies? Sure. But you're going to have to pay for a lot of inventory that's built on there, like a very capital intensive business. But if you want to kind of make an investment on how transportation might work 5, 10, 15 years from now, Lyft is kind of a, is, a, is a really interesting way to get that kind of exposure or to express that kind of view as an investor. You know, it's funny to look back because LA is really the perfect test market for something like a Lyft because public transportation is so terrible here, but everyone has to get around. It's such a huge city. And it's just funny to look back. I mean, there was a local app called Taxi Magic it was really kind of one of the first variations because it used to cost $150 across the city. And so you would often hear people if they were going to go to dinner downtown or to Silver Lake or somewhere that would take an hour to get to because of LA traffic. Half the time people say, look, I'm just going to drive and get a hotel room. You know, and so that was kind of probably <laughs> one of the origins of Hotel Tonight, now Airbnb yeah. um, as well. And so this massive disruption to taxi magic happened. And then I guess, you know, the, the Ubers and Lyfts came along. And I remember taking my first Lyft and this kid picked me up in, a, in the just dumpiest station wagon and he drove us to pick up some beer and then just go. I mean, it was just like the most ridiculous. I'm like this business, uh, you know, it, it, that was back when everyone just assumed everyone was going to get murdered in their Uber. And so rambling a bit. But, you know, it's funny to walk forward and see it now as this major corporation where they're doing scooters, which probably for a lot of people seemed like a dumb idea at the time, too. But now they're all over. It'll be really fun to watch kind of it evolve over the next few years. One of the things that I think it's really instructive that a lot of investors don't understand well is the concept of dilution. And so Lyft has gone through, I don't know how many series of the alphabet. They're, they're probably halfway through the alphabet before they went public. And so listeners, if you're not familiar with venture capital, you know the way that private investing works is uh, every round has a different letter and they keep going. 
And, you know, we saw some reporting recently where on the Carl Icahn, I think he got in around a $2 billion valuation. And then, and this was originally, there's a lift's going to go public at $20 billion. And everyone's like, oh my God, Carl made 10 times his money. But lost in that was this, this topic of dilution. Could you tell, could you like describe that a little bit for the audience? Cause I feel like it's not um, a well understood topic for, for a lot of people. Totally, totally. So I think, you know, as a, as a bit of background as kind of doing the venture capital for dummies piece, you know, a company will go through multiple rounds of funding over their life cycle before they become a public company, hopefully. And, you know, the first investments are usually smaller in size and give you a certain percentage of the company. And the ones that are later in the, in the stage are usually much larger checks for, for smaller percentage pieces of the company. But the, the way that kind of dilution works is that even when you talk about when Lyft went public, you know, it raised two, two and a half billion dollars of cash and in exchange had to give up a, you know, a meaningful piece of their company. What that means is that as companies grow in valuation, your percentage ownership of the company is going to get diluted over time. So if we give an example, let's just say, Mev, you and I start a company together and we each get 50 shares out of out of 100 total shares. So you own half of it and I own half of it. So when when we go and we raise some money from another investor and they give us cash in exchange for let's just say a 20% ownership stake, what actually is going to happen is that we're going to issue that investor 25 new shares. And the reason why it's 25 new shares is that now that investor's 25 new shares over the 125 total shares is a 20% ownership stake. So you and I used to have 50% of this business, but now we each only have 40%. And that's basically because of the dilutive effects of that new investor coming in. So think about that happening not just once, but as you mentioned, through the first nine letters of the alphabet series, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, which is, I just pulled it up, is, is what Lyft had. And think about some really large rounds where instead of just giving up 10 or 15% of the business, you might have given up 25 or 30% of the business. As you do that over time, your ownership state can, like, can get drastically reduced. I think like the best example of this was in the Box IPO where Aaron Levy was like a sole founder maybe a few years ago. Everyone was really excited. They said, you know, all these journalists are writing, they're like, oh my gosh, Box is going to be worth billions of dollars. Let's do a piece on how rich Aaron Levy is. And they looked at it and they said, well, yeah, he's he's pretty wealthy, but he only owns like 4.8% of this business. And everyone said like, well, how is that possible? What did he, what was he just, you know, handing out shares to people just for fun? And the answer was no, like you own hundred percent of the business, you give away 20% of it a bunch of times. You can be left with a meaningfully smaller piece than you started with. And we've actually kind of seen that with Lyft as well. Um, you know, the two co-founders own, I don't have it in front of me, but I would guess probably each own like less than 10% of the business and just because of the way they've had to raise capital. So I think that is also like another consequence or, yeah, I guess consequence is the right word, of how companies are raising capital now is that they are hoping that they're going to have a five, you know, founders are hoping they're going to have a five or 10% stake of a $10 billion business, as opposed to going public, having a 50% stake of a $400 million, $500 million business, which is an important calculation to make as a founder of a company, you know, like even so I'm, you know, the founder of our company, like I think about these things a lot, you know, is it, you know, there's a lot of risk reward of building out a business that's going to become billions of dollars potentially in size, knowing that the risk reward, you know, the, the things you got to go through to succeed to get there are really hard, but obviously the, the size of the pie is going to be so huge versus what if we build kind of like a stable, steady, recurring business model that's that never becomes a bajillion dollar business, but we keep a lot of control and ownership. Like those are those are kind of the types of topics that you have late nights over a couple of scotches with your co-founders to talk about, you know, what's most important to you. Well, let's say 
And, and the example, by the way, real quick, was that, that we were thinking about with the Carl Icahn, you know, where, where all the media was saying, hey, he made like 10, 20 times his money or something. But but because the dilution ended up being, I don't know, three or five times his money, which still cool, by the way, Uncle Carl, but 200 million in, you know, it's nothing to shake a stick at, but but also not totally accurate. And the, and the public market equivalent that we've talked, you know, to the moon about here is is this concept of buybacks and share issuance, where a lot of investors, whether or not they understand that, and, and most of the media doesn't, and politicians in the same same category, you know, buybacks have the ability to increase your stake if you're not selling, but but uh, but the benefit of using that in a screen, which we call shareholder yield, is that uh, you're also avoiding companies that are issuing a ton of stock largely in the public markets, that's through options, but also through fundraising. And it's not to say, again, issuance is, is neither here nor there. It just changes the equation and people need to be aware of it. And, and a lot of people aren't. It's actually really interesting thinking about it, like coming in both directions, right? You've got new companies like coming out of the woodwork, going public that are like heavily dilutive and kind of continue to dilute, right? Like Lyft's probably going to raise more money in some new offering like six months from now. And on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the incumbents you know, you got a car company or so you've got another company that's saying like, oh, actually, instead of us issuing stock to grow, we are doing the opposite. We are like kind of retracting into our shell a little bit and we're going to go buy out a bunch of the shares to make the to make your ownership stake go up. Right. It's kind of interesting to like see both ends of the spectrum kind of converge. Yeah. And then we talk a lot about this. The best book that I think people can read on the topic is The Outsiders. And it talks about a lot about the importance of a CEO's role. Um, a public companies is in particular, I mean, it's for all, but public companies is capital allocation. And so what they do with their cash, because there's only five things they can do with it. They can reinvest in the business. They can pay down debt. They can go acquire another company. And then the two ways they return it to shareholders through dividends and buybacks. And that's it. You know, there's the only choices available. And so when you get to a certain size, like an Apple, there's a lot of these companies that just simply can't invest enough or don't have enough projects that have a good return of capital. And the, the thing that trips people up in public markets is they confuse dividends and buybacks, which are essentially the same thing, barring taxes, buybacks being a lot more flexible. But but the thing they almost everyone misses is the opposite side of buybacks, which is share issuance. So you could have a company, for example, with a 4% dividend yield, but happens to be issuing 5% in shares each year to management through options essentially has a negative yield. And so anyway, it's it's something that I think the whole takeaway is to look at it holistically, whether just looking at one lever doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But we go on we could go on about that for hours. Well actually one piece about that that I think is helpful to know is when you ask somebody like, oh, how does a market cap get calculated for a company? Like I've found that like even when you talk to very like senior equity analysts at banks and other folks and venture capitalists, like no one has like one true north of how this market cap gets calculated. Meaning that like as you kind of said, alluded to, like a company with a 4% dividend yield and a 5% issuance record in like, you know, 2018, it's very easy to kind of like throw in and issue a couple shares here or there, like left and right throughout the year to executives for promotion, for warrants, for other things. And so, yeah, I think that's like a really good point to highlight for, for listeners is that like, it's annoying because it's happening and it's actually hard to track. You know, a, a dividend yield is, is very easy to calculate. Like the issue, I feel like the the number of shares being issued in a given year is actually kind of hard. And the way that they calculate market cap is pretty hard too. The simplest way I think investors can visualize it, there's a great uh, piece of software called Y Charts. Obviously, Bloomberg does it and others, but those are not widely available. And if you simply look at a shares outstanding 
field over time and you can chart it on Y charts, it's pretty cool to visualize because you have these companies you want to see in general, the historical record shows you want companies that are, as Charlie Munger says, you want the cannibals. So reducing share count because you own more, but that also correlates very highly to companies that have cash in the first place to be utilizing it. So usually they have to make money or high quality businesses that are reducing share count, which has been a great place to be. Um, but you can visualize how the shares outstanding changes over time because a lot of different companies, some will do it in one big starburst, you know, where they buy a bunch and then just stop. Others will reduce it X amount every quarter. Yeah. And so it's, it's a, and others again, on the flip side will be issuing. So it's one of the reasons people struggle with this metric factor in public markets is because you can't usually just look up buyback yield or shareholder yield on, on Yahoo finance, because it's not as stable as dividend yield. It gets a little confusing for people. Anyway, that's, that's why we wrote a book on the topic, but <laughs> oh, well. All right. So a few more things I want to dive into. One is, you know, so the, let's say an investor who's been around, whether it's Carl or someone else, talk about how they eventually get liquidity because most there's a lockup period. Am I right? Yep, that's right. That's right. So, so yeah, you know, we kind of talked a little bit earlier about how the IPO is kind of the issuance of these new shares to, to investors. Like, you know, let's just assume that it's like a fidelity mutual fund that buys a bunch of shares of the Lyft IPO. So, you know, the next question would kind of be like, well, what, what, what happens to all the people that already own shares in Lyft? Like, what are they able to do? And a way to make sure there isn't absolute and utter chaos on the first day of trading is to uh, require each of the existing shareholders of Lyft. So that's basically the founders, their early investors, anybody that bought shares in the secondary market, their current employees, their ex-employees. That whole group basically has to sign on to, the, to agree to not sell their shares in the public market for the first 180 days. That's kind of the typical standard. I think I've seen some that were a little bit longer, but almost all are basically 180 day lockup. So what that means is that if you are Carl Icahn and the IPO for Lyft happened uh, on March 29th on Friday, uh, you saw that shares were worth somewhere around 80 bucks, $79, and you got to mark your position there. But rather than saying, you know what, I think it's a fair price for Lyft. I'm going to get out of my position. You can't. <laughs> you have to sit and hold and wait and pray and keep your fingers crossed until, what is it, September 29th. So that is kind of the six-month lockup period. And what that may lead to, and I think maybe you're kind of alluding to this in like, you know, in the late 90s, is that in companies where a lot of those shares are locked up, and for like Lyft's example, it's going to be like 90% of the shares outstanding. That means that like on September 29th, on that six-month like anniversary, you may see like a ton of downward pressure on the stock because of all these people saying, Oh, thank God I can take some chips off the table. And sometimes that can lead to a retreat of the stock price right around that expiry going away. And so that's kind of what we've seen. And then to kind of extrapolate on that, one of the things that frustrates me a little bit on how how these IPOs happen and how trades happen after it goes public is that everyone's talking about how Lyft stock was performing, you know, even just two days in, right? So we're on we're on Monday, April first right now. And and you know, it's only the second day of trading and people are saying, Oh my gosh, it's down a lot. It's below its IPO price. What's going on? Why don't why are people dumping their shares? The funny thing is, this is like a $30 billion company where only 10% of the stock is actually tradable like in anybody's hands because all the other shares are locked up. So you've got a $30 billion company where only $3 billion worth of shares are actually exchanging hands. And all of those people were given the, or were issued the shares on Friday morning. So like, it's not an accurate reflection of what people really think about the stock because you basically have like an amplifier of stock movements, right? Like only one-tenth of the shares are dictating what all 100% of the shares are going to be worth. 
So that really means that if there's bad news, rather than 100% of the shares exchanging hands at any given point, there's only 10% that are able to do it. You can have some really, really wild swings. And so what I would imagine is going to happen is like on Lyft's first earnings report, and this goes for really any tech company that, that goes through this, like Lyft's first earnings report is going to have a very big piece of news that says how the company's performing. And then one-tenth of the shares outstanding that are actually able to exchange hands are going to exchange hands based on people's interpretation of those earnings. And so if the earnings are really good, you're going to see the thing skyrocket because there's such a limited quantity of shares to buy. There's more more shares like that, you know, just kind of supply demand economics or dynamics. And then the opposite is going to happen too, where if the company has a not so great report, there are going to be so many people looking to sell, but there's only so many shares that you can use to sell. And so one of the, one of the kind of interesting, almost like technical disadvantages, I think of how these lockup periods work is that you've got this like six month period of just like what I think is a lot of like embedded and unnecessary volatility and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's an important topic talking about float and how much I laughed about how you, know, you used to be tra uh, shooting fish in a barrel. But on the flip side, one of my back when I was a discretionary trader a million years ago, one of the biggest trading losses I ever had was shorting a lockup to where no one sold and all the insiders were were, were long-term investors and then <laughs> instead of it crashing it it ran so i have got a lot of scars from both sides when when do options start getting involved can you know let's say you're a one of the lift founders who has no liquidity i'm sure they've diversified and, and are totally fine but i want to talk a little bit about how investors think about if they own a lot of private stock Two is once the IPO happens, is there anything they can do and any other ways to buffer potential concentration risk, all those sort of topics? What I would imagine has happened from, you know, early stage investors in Lyft, for example, like some of their venture capital investors, et cetera, is that over periods of time, they probably sought to sell some of their shares before the company's even gone public through like a pre-IPO secondary transaction um, where uh, let's some series A investor that put in cash into Lyft you know, eight years ago has found a, a buyer and purchaser of their shares um, and has been able to take some chips off the table. So that's kind of like one thing that I would expect to see. And then at post lockup, I would expect that a lot of these investors are going to sell their shares kind of systematically into the market, you know, not all in one fell swoop, but over some period of time, pay some fees to do that, return a lot of the capital to their ending limited partners, right? So each venture capital firm, if we kind of think of the VC industry, each venture capital firm is basically funded by a bunch of limited partners. So the investor has its own investors and has an obligation over time to return money to those those limited partners. So, you know, if you're in Lyft and you're, let's just say Andreessen Horowitz, that, that, that's making something like $1.2 billion off of their $60 million investment in Lyft, you're going to return that money, you know, six, 12 months from now, you're going to return to those limited partners and you're probably going to time it where you're going to return that money just at the same time you're going to ask that, let them know that you're raising a new fund, right? A new venture capital fund. You know, Andreessen's going to go, here's your $1.2 billion. We're going to keep our performance. Also, I did want to let you know, we have to be back in the market. We see some really interesting opportunities. Would love to manage your money again. So that's what I think is going to happen on kind of the, the institutional side. On the founder side and on the early employee side, you know, they still are going to have to wait until that six month is up. You know, what I would advocate for, you know, disclaimer that this isn't financial advice and, you know, you should talk to your professional RAA, et cetera, is if you're a Lyft employee and you're holding on to a bunch of stock and let's just say six months later, the stocks perform really well and Lyft's at 100 or 120 or 140, you may be kind of tempted to say, you know what, I'm going to kind of let this ride for a little bit. I would suggest you don't because if you're still working there, you basically have your 
your net worth and your source of income tied to the same place, which is uh, probably both exciting, but also financially not the most prudent thing to do. So, you know, I, I'm a normal advocate of, you know, particularly younger people as well, kind of getting getting their money into equities in a very diversified way that costs them very little money. Holding a bunch of shares of Lyft and working at Lyft is a very concentrated way of, of having equity exposure. So that would be my advice to anybody if they were to ask me. Yeah. And on top of that, you have obviously the considerations of taxes and, you know, it's there's there's a lot of ruminations at this point in the cycle about all of the spillover wealth effects you may see. And, you know, I, I was thinking about this morning over coffee where there was an article in the journal talking about how, you know, if all these companies go public in the Bay Area or L.A. or New York or whatever, it's going to create this just large pool of young millionaires um, that part of the concept was they would turn around and uh, many of them become angel investors, also buying homes and things like that and the implications. And so part of me was like, all right, you know, that this is some signs of tops, but also part of me, I like to try to be balanced thought about how, what sort of like renaissance of young early investors would look like if all of a sudden you armed, you know, thousands of investors with seven figure portfolios, eight figure portfolios of, of wealth and what depending on how they planned on using it, maybe they'll just consume it and buy jets, but maybe they'll turn into angel investors. Um, anyway, what the implications that might be. So I have one very funny story about this that you'll find probably kind of entertaining. So, you know, equities end. So what we do is we, we help, you know, these employees and ex-employees at private tech companies with liquidity while the companies are still private. And so we got reached out to by a, this is a random partnership opportunity. We got reached out to by a very nice real estate developer in San Francisco that had built a flashy, beautiful, condo building and it was planning to sell one to eight million dollar price units to the future millionaires of San Francisco. And they had built the building with the hopeful timing that it would coincide with a bunch of these big unicorns going public and all these employees getting a bunch of cash and then buying their apartments. And it turns out it was now 2019. They had built the building. They were not selling units as fast as they were hoping to. And so they actually called us and said, hey, could you give a talk to a bunch of these employees at pre-IPO companies and tell them, you know, if there's if they're able to sell their shares now, they can. And, and to me, it was just kind of remarkable that like I had found a way for our business or somebody had found a way to partner up with us because they had built a multi hundred million dollar property in San Francisco, banking on all this liquidity come through. So, you know, it's it like you said, it's kind of maybe it's a sign of the top, but it's 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 no joke, right? Like, I mean, people are putting their they're really believing in it. But I just thought it was kind of a crazy story that a real estate developer wanted to talk to me for some reason. Mm. It's easier today, at least, you know, and you guys help facilitate that where companies and we talked a little bit about this on the last podcast and individuals at least can hopefully find liquidity on the way so that they're not just 100% stuck with this investment that represents 99.9% of their net worth they can't do anything with. And it's interesting, once you do have a public investment that is a large concentration and trying to avoid the taxes is tough, but for a long time, financial advisors have been marketing these exchange funds. And I know people are trying to build something like that in the ETF structure to, to help avoid taxes. But often, as we all know, the IRS will not be denied when it comes to <laughs> um, when it comes to these topics. Thinking about the private landscape. So we've talked a lot about the process. We've talked a lot about the way IPOs happen and concentration and concentration risks. Thinking about alts in general, 
you know, there's a lot of platforms out there today. There's real estate, there's crowdfunding, there's all sorts of different stuff. What do you guys kind of think about as you think about the lay of the land, access to alt investments? You know, how, how should investors be approaching and, and navigating this? I don't know if you want to call it an asset class, do you want to call it a space? And what sort of opportunities are available? Any ideas? Totally. So I, I've given this a lot of thought. I think it, it, first off, you got to you almost got to identify yourself as an investor and kind of which route you are. So when I think of kind of individual investors getting into alternative assets, right? Not institutions, but individual investors getting into alternative assets. One big part um, that will determine which path to go is if you have your own wealth manager or not, right? So if you're your own self-directed investor, you're putting together your portfolio yourself. Consider yourself this. We're going to go down the self-directed path, and I can talk about that. If you have a wealth manager, things are going to be a little bit different. If you have a wealth manager that works at Morgan Stanley, you may get access to offerings through Morgan Stanley that give you exposure to hedge funds, private equity funds, et cetera, maybe at like relatively large clips at a time, but you might have some more exposure to managers that way. If you if you don't go through a wealth manager and you're kind of doing this a la carte, as I'd say, right? You're kind of like choosing your own adventure and how you're going to do things. Um, then I think it's super exciting, right? Like because t- ten years ago, if you wanted to invest in like a hedge fund and you needed a quarter million to a million dollars, and you needed to know the manager, right? Like you need to know the, the manager that's managing the fund. You had to contact them. You had to say, "Hey, you don't know me, but um, I have a quarter million dollars, and I think what you're doing is super exciting." It's kind of hard to do when you have like a full time job and you know, I don't know, a whole life with kids and a dog and everything. So. What's happened now is that now you have like this kind of this full spread, right? This like kind of buffet of, of real estate offerings. You've got um, hedge fund offerings. You've got pre-FEO or private tech offerings, a lot of different things. I guess the, the part I would say is, one, you want to look into the fee structures involved um, because I think fees can add up really quickly. Um, so I think that's super important. Two is you want to diversify as much as you can. And it's actually that's easier said than done across a lot of these alternative platforms because the minimums that they have on transactions relative to what used to be available to you, right, are great. You know, we've made very, very big leaps and bounds on offering something that used to require a $250,000 check down to a $10,000 check. That's great. But let's just say that you've got $500,000 of um, assets to invest with, and you want to allocate 20% of that towards, or let's just say 10% of that to, to alternative assets, because that's what seems appropriate and what you can kind of stomach as far as kind of risk reward goes. Well, that leaves you like 50 grand to invest across different assets. If you're putting 10,000 of it or 20,000 of it into one single crowdfunding company that makes, I don't know, you know, artisan dog socks or something, um, that, that's not going to pay out for like many, many years and has really like a low hit rate. That, it's really hard to get a lot of diversification. So I guess what I would say is, the advice I would give is try to build as diversified a portfolio as you can across multiple investment offerings and across multiple platforms as you, as you can. And also kind of target a percentage of your portfolio that you're going to allocate towards and probably try to stick to it. And then lastly is have an, a real conversation with those that are closest to you on when you might need the money that you're putting into these investments back. Because I think the one thing that I, we might see coming, you know, when, once this 10-year bull run ends is... I think there's going to be kind of a day of reckoning where a lot of people got into these alternative investments and did not think through the fact that investing in a private equity fund, even at only 10 grand or investing in an angel invest or like kind of uh, making an angel investment. I, I think a lot of people are going to underestimate 
how illiquid these things really are. And, and that's going to be that's going to be an interesting part. So I, that's kind of the one thing I would say is kind of a, a self-directed investor is the money that you put into alternative platforms online. You should think about when you're going to get that money back reasonably. Think about if you're OK with that period of time. And then kind of make a decision if you want to move forward. I imagine particularly in booming times, investors probably overestimate their their time frame and ability to really have the wherewithal to sit. I mean, meaning like a lot of people say, Oh yeah, I could probably put ten grand in XYZ startup or on a private fund and then you know, three years from now you have a health issue or, or you lose your job or um, you go through a divorce, whatever it may be, or you just, you know, aren't, aren't want to buy a house. You don't really have too many choices. A lot of times with private investments, you're kind of stuck. And that's one in my, in many ways, I think a, a benefit and a feature because people tend to do really dumb stuff with the public investments. But uh, <laughs> I think people probably overestimate how stuck they really are if they, um, if they invest in a private company. When we, um, when I talk to like some some wealth managers and talk to their end clients, I, I have a conversation with them about, you know, I ask the wealth manager, I say, so so how do you think about these alternative platforms and these angel investments, et cetera, for your client? And the usual response is, in the, the recurring one I've heard, which makes a lot of sense, is every year I have a conversation with that client. Uh, we determine what percentage of his portfolio is going to go towards that strategy, and we agree that if that part goes to zero they're okay with it, right? Like we put that into a very risky bucket. It's kind of like, we're going to put that into the bucket of like, when your son says that he has an indie film that he wants to produce and you give him 50 grand, like you're going to put it in that bucket, right? And they, they put the money there and like they have the agreement and that way the wealth manager doesn't say, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think it's a bad idea. They don't say anything. They say, all right, cool. You got 50 grand over in that bucket. Have fun. Put it on equities and put it on AngelList, put it on Yield Street, put it on Realty Mogul, et cetera. Like, go do what you want with it, so long as you and I both know that it's not going to be a material impact to your financial picture if that thing goes to zero tomorrow. And I think that's kind of like the right approach you have to make to some of these alternative platforms. Except the client never actually believes that it'll go to zero. They, just, <laughs> they, say, they say, I'm cool with that, but uh, wait till it but happens. what are the odds, right? What are, what the, are the odds? odds? Good um, yeah. Talk to me a little bit, to the extent you can, about the future of the private investing space. And, and I don't mean as much the future of venture capital, but you can talk about that if you want. I mean, we at SoftBank is a particularly recent major, you know, gravitational force. But what I'm really thinking about is, you know, you've seen the development of these platforms. You mentioned AngelList, which is a little more early stage. Traditionally, you guys traditionally focus more on, on a later stage private but as the world changes, as new legislation happens, we'd love to hear about how you kind of see this space evolving over the next five to 10 years. Will we see more private exchanges? Is there something like that that is feasible? Any other ideas? We'd love to, to hear you um, ruminate on. I think it's going to be a delicate balance that will eventually get towards more of like quasi-public private stock exchanges where shares can exchange hands, but the burden on the companies isn't nearly as high as being a public company. And I think where the balance comes from is that on the one hand, you've got companies that want to stay private longer and longer and raise capital from the soft banks of the world, et cetera. And you may want to make those investments actually available to everyday investors more and more. But you've got regulatory pressure where the SEC and FINRA, where these governing bodies want to ensure that 
your everyday investor doesn't get doesn't get hosed, right? Doesn't get sold snake oil. It's kind of like what you saw with cryptocurrency is like the second it became really popular, two things happened. A bunch of really crappy ICOs and initial coin offerings came out that were complete frauds. And the SEC decided that they were going to take a very, very serious look on how these things were were being done and whether they could be the, you know, the governing body or the regulating body over the things. So I think a slower version of that, because nothing moves as fast as crypto does up or down, is that what you'll see is individual investors are going to clamor for access to the lifts of the world, the docu-signs of the world, the Ubers of the world, because they want to participate in these things that do pretty well and perform well. And the companies are going to eventually want to stay private longer, so they're going to have to kind of accept that that's kind of the the new normal. And then you're going to have a regu- you're going to have a regulating body that says, well, we got to make sure that this this whole new system doesn't get abused. What I think that ends up looking like is like five, ten years from now, you're going to have kind of this quasi public private exchange where there is a more robust marketplace that's active that has like bids and asks, um, where people can buy and sell shares of private companies. The disclosures required from the companies on how they're doing is going to be relatively limited compared to what they do for a public company, but far in excess for that what you get available now from private companies. And there's going to be a real close watch on it from the SEC and FINRA and probably from Congress on how those things work. It's going to kind of be like maybe a grown up version of the Jobs Act that was what was an attempt for kind of crowdfunding to, to become available. So that's kind of where I see things evolving towards, but I think is kind of a mutual benefit to to the investors, because you're actually going to get some of those returns back. Like I, I, I get a little pressure on how like venture capital as a whole works, where like 20 or 30 funds are kind of, in my opinion, kind of like sucking all of the, all of the alpha out of, you know, the entire tech industry um, away from like your individuals. So I, I, anything that can kind of, uh, kind of reverse that trend, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of. And so that's what I think we're going to kind of end up at. For you guys specifically, putting on your equities in hat, I've seen some announcements of some potential new offerings. You may or may not be able to talk about them, but what does the future look like for you guys? Uh, is this a situation where you're starting to bounce around some other ideas about the future of private investing? Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so you know, at Equity Zen, we're able to make these investment offerings available in, in late stage companies. We've worked with about 140 different private tech companies, a lot of which have you know, gone on to go public and we've been able to kind of deliver these public shares to, to these investors. But right now, for one, we're limited to just offering this to accredited investors, which means that you have to have $200,000 of annual income or a million dollars of net worth, which is obviously is kind of a small subsector of, you know, the overall population. And so we'd like to, we'd like to continue exploring how we can make this available to the masses. And I think the second part is, you know, we talked about some of these minimum investment sizes you might see on platforms, right? $10,000 at a time, $20,000 at a time. The more and more we work on our products, our technology, our platform, the more we automate things away um, in the transaction process, the more efficient we can be and therefore the, the smaller the investment sizes we can offer. And so I think the two focuses we have on our side, or really, really the three are longer term, can we make this investment offering available to investors that aren't just accredited? Um, that's one. Two is can we lower the minimum investment size you know, using technology and standardization of the transactions. And then I think three is continuing to make available an investment product that is diversified. So that means not just offering an investment in, you know, one private technology company, but making uh, available an investment where you kind of almost have like a mutual fund type offering where you can invest in 15 or 20 or 25 companies. So those are kind of the 
three things we're working on right now. Did I see you mention you're also thinking about potentially other asset classes and ideas as well? I know your your main focus to date has been late stage private companies. Any other things you're you're thinking about? Yeah, so you know we've we've looked at. I don't want to give away too much on what our next kind of iteration might be, but but what we have learned is that we've built kind of this infrastructure for for liquidity, right? For for very illiquid assets. And and we started with pre-active secondary stock. And it's gone really well. You know, we've been able to provide a lot of value to somebody that wanted to sell shares in a private tech company and connect them with somebody who wanted to buy it. Turns out there's like an analogy for that in a lot of different asset classes that um, hasn't really been addressed yet. We actually even with market sizes that are probably in excess of what we're doing on the pre-IPO side. So uh, the answer would be kind of stay tuned there, but our, our plan is that um, you know we'll, we may launch a couple new offerings in in different asset classes that investors may feel very boxed out of right now, and that shareholders may feel like there's no means of liquidity for, and try to kind of connect the dots, which is what we're getting known for. Well, if the longtime listeners, the last 158 episodes, know this well and dear, because I have a farmland in Western Kansas that is 95% plus individual or privately owned there's almost no publicly way to access that asset class which is probably good over the last five years because it hasn't done a whole lot Um, (laughs) that's that's a big interest for me so uh fingers crossed there hill last uh last couple questions i've already kept you over an hour what's you got any predictions for us for the rest of 2019 who's going to be the biggest splash and you mentioned you alluded to earlier something about lyft losing a lot of money but you ain't seen nothing yet what what were you talking about, and what are your uh, what are your predictions for the rest of the year? So I got kind of got two predictions for our space. Um, you know, meaning like kind of this late stage pre IPO space. The first one is that I think we'll see a, another direct listing, kind of a la Spotify, um, by the end of the year. So we're going to see a company that says, "I'm not going to pay that five percent fee or six percent fee fee for uh, for the initial public offering. I'm gonna I'm gonna just list my shares directly on, on the exchange." So I think we're going to see one of those, and then. Again, yeah, my not so bold prediction, I think, is that we are going to see probably two or three companies go public by the end of the year in the tech space, uh, in the tech industry, with over a billion dollars in, you know, trailing 12 month losses. And so I think it's going to really highlight how some companies in the private markets have raised literally billions of dollars and are spending it very, very aggressively for the sake of top line growth um, and capturing an entire market. So like, I wouldn't be surprised to see WeWork, for example, go public with a huge top line valuation while have been, having burned multi-billions of dollars in the previous year. So those are those are my two kind of bold, but not so bold predictions for 2019. Well, we'll just have to keep having you on as these events transpire. I think we mentioned, Phil, what's the best place for people to find you if they want to keep up with all of the goings on in your world and uh, with your firm? Yeah, absolutely. So if you go to equitiesn.com, equitiesen.com, uh, you can kind of take a look at everything we have there. We also have a knowledge center. So if you just do equitiesn.com slash knowledge dash center, we kind of keep track of IPOs, pre-IPO research trends, performance of different uh, VCs, et cetera. So kind of a one-stop shop for, for those that are trying to learn a little bit more about the pre-IPO space. Great. We'll add a link. You're, you guys are a fun follow on Twitter as well. So we'll put all these on the show notes. Phil, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Meb. Always fun. Everybody, you can go find uh, links to this episode, a lot of the show notes we talked about today, mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. Shoot us an email, feedback at mebfavorshow.com if you want to hang out in Minneapolis or you got some suggestions, complaints 
Uh, you can always find us on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Radio Public, any place good podcasts are sold. Thanks for listening, friends. Good investing. <laughs>